I believe that if you're going to effectively carry out your mission in the future, that there are some things that you're going to have to do. I believe you're going to have to clearly retain the ability to engage in church discipline, and I believe that you're going to have to clearly articulate church doctrine. I'm breaking this conversation into two parts today. The first part is really not the topic that I wanted to talk about, but it's going to be the topic that I spend most of the time on, and that's dealing with church leadership. Then I'm going to move into the topic that I really want to talk about, and that's the retention of disciplinary authority and uh, ensuring that your church has control over its own doctrine. You guys with me? The church is an entity that is sacred. It is created in the New Testament. And yet, it also is governed by state law. They talk about the separation of church and state. Well, that's great. They say the church shouldn't interfere with the state, but you know what? The state interferes with the church, right? So, let's talk about the various, some of the various leadership roles and roles of persons in the church. The role of elder. The role of elder is a biblically created role. There are certain roles that the elder un, un, under the church are supposed to play. They're supposed to lead the church. They're supposed to teach and preach. They're supposed to protect the church from false teachers. Lead the body in sound doctrine. They're supposed to visit the sick and to pray and they are supposed to determine doctrinal issues. Guess what? The state, originally, under the kings, right? Originally, under the kings, they established uh, state charters, and they chartered corporations. Your church is a corporation under state law. That law was not developed to facilitate churches. That law was developed to govern secular organizations, and these organizations are governed by boards of directors, okay? I'm going to read this to you. Except where the law, the articles, or the regulations require that action be otherwise authorized or taken, all of the authority of a corporation shall be exercised by or under the direction of its directors. For their own government, the directors may adopt bylaws that are not inconsistent with the articles or the regulations. Does that sound like the role of an elder to you? It's very different from the role of an elder, right? Elders have certain leadership requirements associated with their role, right? Some things I'll point out. Number one, they have all authority of the corporation. Now they can appoint officers, but from a corporate law perspective, Directors have the authority. Sometimes we call them trustees, by the way. They can adopt bylaws, but they cannot adopt bylaws that are in contradiction of state law. How about that? That's typical in most states. So, this role of elder on the sacred side and the role of director on the state side often become confused. Have you guys experienced that? Do you, have, do you have times where you have elders who feel like they are the directors of a large corporation and they're going to go in and they're going to direct this corporation the same way uh, directors would? So what we have is a result where there's confusion in the church and there's confusion with the elders as to what their roles are. In fact, an immature elder will use their secular authority to obtain control over the church and then use their biblical authority to justify illegitimate actions and Ill illegitimate motivation. Whereas mature elders should be using their secular authority in submission to their biblical mission and in defense of the church against secular powers and in secular antagonisms. Make sense? I have some recommendations to help churches achieve that. Number one, in the bylaws, I think that we should define the role of our elder, and I think we should specifically relate to 
the biblical mandates that are the elder's job. That way, we can begin to teach our elders to submit the state role to the sacred role. I walk a lot like that, by the way. I also think that it's key to select only spiritually mature elders. A lot of times, we have an opening on the board, and we begin to scratch our heads and say, okay, well, who are we going to put on this board? And you find a body to fill the role. Believe me, I'd rather the role go unfilled than to fill it with someone who's spiritually mature because that is a sure court to dispute within your church. I think we need to train our elders so that they themselves have a clear understanding of what their role is. I think the elders themselves, in, in, in partnership with the minister, need to create a culture within the board of elders itself that says, this is our job, the sacred is our job. And frankly, I prefer the elders be involved in the training themselves. The minister shouldn't be the only guy who's training these elders. We should have mature elders training each other because that reinforces the culture of the board of elders. Pause there. Questions? Make sense? You guys get the dichotomy that exists between state law and sacred roles? All right. Now, likewise, the minister has a biblical role. His role is one of preaching and teaching. And yet, as Kyle Eidemann referenced yesterday, sometimes we confuse the minister with the CEO. Chief executive officer is a role that is created under state law, right? All officer positions are created under state law. This does not mean that our ministers are not officers under state law because our churches do exist under state law also, correct? Nonetheless, their primary roles are those that are articulated in the Bible. They're preachers and teachers, and they lead the affairs of the church. Should the, elder, should the minister be an elder? 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. To me, it sounds like the minister is an elder, that the church contemplates that the guy who's going to be preaching and teaching is an elder. And he has the authority to direct the affairs of the church. There are a lot of things that happen when, when the minister is an elder. He's not under the thumb of the Board of Elders. He is a partner with the Board of Elders when that happens. And I think, that's, I think that's key. I think that the Bible also, in this verse, recognizes that there are certain guys who are going to direct the, affair, the affairs of the church and who are going to do the preaching and teaching. And so I do think that it's important that the whole Board of Elders understands what this role is and the minister be willing Take leadership in that and the minister be an elder. All right, I've got a case study. You guys ready to participate a little bit? Okay. Two new elders are elected to the board. By the, by the way, these case studies, most of them have happened in my career. These are not mostly made up. Some of them I've tweaked a little facts because I'm trying to pull out a, a particular emphasis, okay? So these things are typically real. Two new elders are elected to the board by the congregation. Initially, things seem to go smoothly. They listen at board meetings, but otherwise do not provide much input. After about six months, one of the new elders begins to draw the minister aside each week, critiquing his sermons. Ever happened? Anybody? Soon thereafter, the minister overhears the other new elder criticizing the minister and his pulpit ministry. The criticism of the minister by these two elders increases to a point where every sermon and every program is critiqued. The minister attempts to appease the elders and bring them together in Christian love. One of the elders explains to the minister that he doesn't run the church. It's the elder's responsibility to do so. Unexpectedly, during one board meeting, the two new elders propose the exploration of a merger with a nearby non-denominational church, which they described as a growing and vital church with a really great minister. What went wrong? Thoughts? What's going wrong in this church? What's that? 
novices as elders. I think that is, that's my diagnosis of this case too. The number one problem in, in this is, is that we have spiritually immature elders who, who, number two, do not understand their role. So this church has not done a good job selecting their elders. This church has not done a good job training their elders, right? Is this a position that any of you want your churches to be in? You have to select your elders properly. You have to train them properly. Anything else going on here? How about what do you want your bylaws to say in this instance? Define the role of the elder. That's exactly right. And define the role of the minister as well, right? We want that defined in our bylaws too. So these things seem like they're mundane, but they cut to the core of what you guys do. Say who we are, say what our job is, and say where we're going, right? I hate that it has to be that way, but that is the way that that it is in the real world. I have some recommendations here for you guys, too. Number one, uh, just as with elders, you need to select your ministers carefully so that your minister is a mature individual. Define the role of the minister in the bylaws so the minister can be comfortable with, with the role that he plays. And by the way, if you're going to a new church, one of the things I would ask in my due diligence is, let me see your bylaws, because I want to make sure that, that I'm going to have the authority that I need to, to to lead this church. Number three, we need to teach our churches, and to the degree that we have elders in here, um, we need to respect our ministers, because they have a heavy burden and a heavy job. Number four, we need to pray for and encourage our ministers. Each one of my kids, I have four children. My oldest one, is her name is Elizabeth. She's 15 years old now. At night, I like to go into them, and I whisper in their ears what's important to them, what, what, what makes them special, right? You are special because my youngest is very brave, fearless. Elizabeth wasn't quite getting right for a long time who she was. I'd say, you're happy, you're smiling all the time. Makes me tear up a little bit, in fact, huh? Lawyers cry. Um, so, so um, and I was a little embarrassed that I wasn't getting it right with her. Um, but then I got it. I came in and said, Elizabeth, you're an encourager. Everybody who knows you is going to do better because they know you. The world is a harsh place. Everyone is criticizing everyone all the time. You know, nothing gets done unless people are doing it. That's period. Things don't just happen. They happen because you are doing them. And people who are feeding negativity into you all the time, that just drags you down. It drags down your mission, right? But if you have encouragers around you, then you'll be able to do anything, anything. To the point of death, you'll do anything because people are encouraging you. So encourage, the church needs to encourage the minister. And by the way, you guys need to encourage each, each other too, right? This is a great seminar right here. This is a great conference right here. And thank you, Doug. Now, this seems like, um, like something that's a little opulent. You say, wow, this is we're in the Bahamas, and we're at the Atlantis Hotel, and uh, so I don't think we should feel entitled to this, but I don't think that we should feel embarrassed that we're here either, because you guys have a hard job. This is part of encouraging you, right? And the only mistake that you will make is if you are so embarrassed about this weekend that you don't take advantage of this weekend. So you need to refresh your batteries, just like the conference says. This is the refresh conference. You need to refresh your batteries. You need to refresh each other, and you know, this is wise on Solomon's part, too, because it has a lot of investment in all of you, in all of your churches. And to send a team out who is not refreshed, we're not going to get the best results. But if you guys go out and you use this, and you lead your churches, and you are refreshed, then that's a wise investment of money. So thank you, Doug, and I think, I think it was very wise here. So, like I say, encourage each other, too. You have lots of opportunities to meet each other here. We have small churches here with, with ministers who would never have a chance to do this if it, if it weren't for this conference. By the way, I'm off script now. You might notice. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, some, of the, some of these churches, these smaller churches, they need the encouragement of the bigger churches. 
So they need you to partner with them. So Cedric's church right over here. He's, uh, we have a church, a small church in, in, uh, from Washington too, I think here. So these guys are, are new and they're trying to get things rolling. And, uh, and we have some bigger churches, some mature churches. I think it would be great if you guys got, got together with Cedric and, had a, and, and talked about becoming sister congregations. You think about things like, wow, you know, we would really like to be able to minister to inner city folks. We know that there are needs there, but we also know that we can't reach them because we may not be culturally correct. We may not be racially correct. Those people may not trust us. We may not understand them well. Well, guess what? Cedric's doing the job. Partner with the guy to get that job done that you want to. You don't have to rebuild that from scratch, right? And I'm not talking about making Cedric's church a mission. I'm talking about encouraging them. I'm talking about making them a sister. Let them help you carry out your mission, and then you can carry out the mission together. Encourage each other. Compensate your ministers. We're working on pay, spend a lot of money on buildings, but a building is not the church, right? It's an important element to, to the church, but we need A-class teams in our churches leading those churches, and part of that is compensation. We don't need ministers, well, churches, are, are, churches are, are fortunate because ministers are mission motivated, right? They're so mission motivated that they compromise their own security a lot of times. And so suddenly you find yourself where ministers are being motivated by uh, the need for money, right? And so money motivation because of pain is not a good way to have ministry mission, right? Those are all M's. I'm a, I'm a preacher's son. They come natural. I believe that educating your minister consistently is important. Help them come out of that day-to-day -day fight and help them have intellectual development. And yes, the church must, be, must hold its minister accountable because ministers are people too, and they are sinful too. But when you do so, you need to do that in private where possible because you're not trying to destroy an individual's ministry. I have seen churches bring the minister forward during Sunday morning conversation and rebuke him in front of the entire congregation as disciplinary for a sin that they, that they, that they found. How does that advance that, minister, that, that minister's ability to preach? How does that impact his future? We all have sin, but there's ways, ways to manage um, uh, church discipline and minister discipline, right? All right, now I'm going to talk about membership. One of the biggest challenges in church ministry are those pesky members, right? This would be an easy job if it weren't, if, if it weren't for the members, these members have spiritual needs, emotional problems, family challenges. They get divorces. They uh, have drug dependencies. They have immature behaviors. They're gossips. They're controlling. They have sexual desires, and they all get together by the hundreds every Sunday, 52 weeks out of the year, in a big room or in separate rooms together, and they expect you to take care of their spiritual needs, their emotional needs, and by the way, if you forget their first cousin's funeral, they leave the church. True? Is it any wonder that we have problems within the church? Don't be surprised when they come up. That is the job, right? So I spent four deployments in the Persian Gulf. But you guys, you guys are just crazy. In 1991, we blew up a baby milk factory, or so CNN said, right? But I didn't get a letter from anybody about swinging a cat around by its tail. <laughs> in fact, two times a year, Memorial Day and Fourth of July, I get to stand up and everybody applauds, right? Sometimes even, even Labor Day, and I have no idea why you have a stand-up during Labor Day. Members, members is also not a biblically created term, right? Can you go through and show me where it talks about members voting on mergers and acquisitions in the book of Acts? Doesn't exist, right? That is also a state-created role. In the Bible, 
we talk about uh, uh, the body of the bride of Christ or the body of the church. We talk about the flock. So that's what we talk about, where we all have some mutual responsibility one to another, right? But members, members have voting rights. I'm not saying voting rights are wrong. I'm not saying that they're bad, but you need to understand that is something that's created under state law and really doesn't have much to do with the biblical role of the church, okay? Therefore, I think it's important to know who your members are. Here's a very common membership provision. I'm telling you, I've seen this exact provision a half a dozen times in church bylaws. The terms of admission to this congregation shall be repentance, faith in Jesus as Savior, confession of Jesus as Lord, and baptism by, baptism by immersion. Immerse disciples of Jesus Christ from other congregations who affirm our basic beliefs and membership expectations shall be welcomed as members. What's, as a lawyer, what's my objection to this? What is it? Too vague? Who said too vague? What do you mean by too vague? So, my objection to this is, this is a great definition of Christian, but it's a terrible definition of member, right? Just, if you baptize somebody and they believe and they repent, they are Christians. If, uh, if Shannon baptizes me today, right, I am not a member of his congregation. But the bylaws say I could well be, which means if he has a hotly disputed issue going on in his church, I get to show up and say, hey, I want to vote. And they might say, eh, I don't know. I say, hmm, let's look at the bylaws. Am I a member or not a member? Hey, Shannon, I'm a member. I can vote for you or against you, right? Likewise, immerse disciples of Jesus Christ from other congregations. And by the way, you can be a member of more than one not-for-profit congregation. We think people are member of, members of church one at a time. But we're talking about not-for-profit corporation law, state law. You can be a member of more than one not-for-profit corporation. I can be a member of six of your not-for-profit corporations. Vote in them all. Immerse disciples of Jesus Christ from other congregations who affirm our basic beliefs and membership expectations should be welcomed as members. Not might be, not could be, shall, shall be welcomed as members. The only criteria are most immersed disciples who affirm our basic beliefs and membership expectations. A little more wordy, sorry. All members of this congregation shall have followed the plan of salvation through repentance, faith in Jesus as Savior, confession of Jesus as Lord, and baptism, baptism by immersion. Okay, so far we're pretty much the same. No member shall be younger than 16 years of age. I really don't want eight-year-olds voting in, in my mergers and acquisitions issues. Membership to this congregation shall be granted following a person's affirmative request for membership. I come up front. I shake Shannon's hand. I would love to become a member, baptized or not. And in this case, it's not a huge church in this instance, approval by a majority of the Board of Elders for admission. So now we get to control not who's Christians. We want everyone to be Christians, right? But that may not be the person in this instance to, to be a member of our congregation. They may not live here, right? All members must acknowledge receipt of the bylaws of this congregation and submit to their terms, including disciplinary authority of the elders. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I do like to have uh, the bylaws placed in the hands of every member who comes through. It keeps us out of legal trouble later. I know that's not what we like to do, right? But keep in mind that you're in a dangerous position and you do have to do things right. Here's another provision that I think is important in your bylaws. Suspension of membership. Accepting elderly or infirm members who cannot reasonably attend or persons who have been granted special dispensations such as those serving in active duty military, members must regularly attend Sunday morning services. Regular attendance means a member's presence at no fewer than one half of regular Sunday morning services during any fiscal year. Failure to maintain regular attendance shall result in a suspension of membership until the person, again, meets minimum membership requirements. Look, you don't, again, 
I know that we're over here on this side. I know that we're not on that side or, uh, over there. But I think that this issue of control of the, uh, of, of the congregation sometimes leads us into trouble. Case study. The elders of a 300-member church have retired after a long tenure. New and much younger elders have been appointed. Soon thereafter, a new minister is hired by the church. He immediately begins to do things that disturb a portion of the congregation, including, one of my favorites, including publicly chainsawing the in, mem in memory of organ down the middle. True story. The older members object. A congregational meeting is called. Many people who have not regularly attended come to the meeting. Some of the older members are met at the door by sheriff's deputies, indicating that the new senior minister has said that they are not welcome on campus and that their presence constitutes trespassing. Much of the membership in protest stops attending. By the way, during that meeting, they changed the bylaws the first time. Much of the membership in protest stops attending. In a subsequent congregational meeting and with a much smaller congregation, new bylaws are presented that limit the power of elders, giving most authority to the minister. The attendance continues to significantly dwindle. The church can no longer pay its bills. And that one, unfortunately, really is a true story. What went wrong? What went right, right? <laughs> we have immature elders, right? We have a minister who's, who's trying to wrest control of the church. We have no definition of, uh, of what a member is in, the, in this church. And I've been, in, I've been in some real disputes. And I hate disputes. I mean, I hate them. But I've been in some real disputes in not-for-profit corporations, not just churches, but including churches, over who's a member and who gets to decide this issue. And then you know who both sides want to decide the issue? Me. I, I become arbitrator, right? It's miserable. What could we have done so that this instance didn't arise? Sometimes it's such a mess, it's hard to know where to begin, right? Start with, start with good, strong elders, right? So that they're protecting the church. So that they're playing their biblical role over here, right? But also, I mean, I'm telling you, this particular minister, um, let's move back over to the hypothetical here. Also, sometimes you will have ministers who will do things for their own desires, their own goals, right? And they can really flummox the church. We have no definition of... We have no definition of, uh, of what a member is here, right? Hmm. All right, now I'm going to move on to what I really wanted to talk about, all right? Now, as we've said, the role of elder, as we talked about, is biblical, but unfortunately, we have to, we have to exercise that authority in a secular legal environment. This is the part of my conversation that I subtitle, don't get yourself sued, okay? Or if you do, when? We're gonna focus on two areas. Number one, church discipline. Number two, retention of the authority to establish church doctrine. That's little right here. But it's a ward in a privacy suit. In this particular instance, this is a Church of Christ, by the way. In this particular instance, there was a member who had been divorced, and the church decided, the leadership decided that they needed to discipline her for infidelity. You don't have to photograph that one. I'll get you a copy of it later. <laughs> uh, they were going to discipline her for infidelity. Uh, as a result of the beginning, the commencement of that, this particular member resigned from the church. The church nonetheless went through the entire disciplinary procedure, and at the end of the disciplinary procedure, they presented the case and the basis for the dis discipline to the entire congregation. 
They got sued for $1.3 million. The plaintiff won $390,000. So look, when these instances come up, number one, we need to make sure that our, our congregants understand who is subject to church discipline. If they don't voluntarily submit to church discipline, then we can be in trouble if we don't, when we try to exercise church discipline over them. Does that make sense? In this particular instance, uh, also the very public nature, well, this person has become not a member by their own cho choosing already, so defining membership is important. Number three, um, this lawsuit was not brought based upon the exercise of church discipline itself. Rather, it was uh, based upon the intentional infliction of emotional distress and violation of privacy. Um, because of the very public nature of this, um, the court decided, and there are punitive damages here too, by the way, the court decided that the church had intentionally shamed this in individual and that it was an intentional infliction of emotional distress. Now, the exercise of church discipline is biblically mandated. You can take a look at Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. However, it's not specifically mandated to the elders exclusively per se. We all have disciplinary authority over each other. We'll go and approach a brother. We'll talk to him in, in private if there's something wrong. If that doesn't work, then there'll be two of us that will go and talk to him, right? We all know that, that solution in Matthew. However, Elders themselves do have disciplinary authority, and under state law, remember, the board of directors, they have certain authority with regard to members as well, which is, by the way, I'm going to take an aside. A lot of times I've seen churches where the board of elders is separated from the board of trustees, and, they, and the churches feel that the trustees need to sign documents and do other mundane things, and they think that that's the way to preserve this board of elders. I disagree with that because the real authority in the corporation when that happens under state law is with the trustees. They just don't know it. They're accountable to the attorney general. They don't, just don't know it. If there's a dispute, they have the real authority. And why would we give the real authority to people who we would really rather be the people who are wise and spiritually mature to govern the organization? Right? Does that make sense? So I prefer, even though the roles are in conflict to a degree, I prefer that as we exist, that they be combined. Um, so I do think the Board of Elders needs to be the board to exercise church discipline. Um, and we're in a position where, uh, uh, as I say, the legal framework is changing all the time. Uh, but we still have to be able to exercise that level of church discipline. I've got a case study for you. A respected woman in the congregation, who, by the way, considers herself to be a prophet, it comes out, spreads false rumors about the senior minister dealing drugs, causing church discord. One congregant to whom she spreads the rumor in detail corrects her and says, that wasn't the minister. That was me who was doing that. So she was saying that the minister was dealing drugs, and she tells somebody else, and that congregant says, uh, what you're saying, the scenario is true, but it ain't him. It was me, he actually tells her, and that part of my life is over with now. She looks at him and says, oh, I was just testing you. Now, by the way, this lady and her spouse had been at the church previously. The first time they had, so, well, she had so discord and 54 people out of a church of about 220 had left the first time. They came back, and the church counseled with them and said, okay, this time, you know, we're, we're concerned about you guys, we love you guys, and we'll welcome you back. So they came back, and doggone it, the same thing happened again, except worse. Okay, what should the church do? Speak up loud. I can't hear you if you're mumbling. What was that? Flogging?
And this is why I have job security. <laughs> well, does she stay or does she go? Let's start there. Go. Does everybody, everybody agree she should go? What's the process? Elders. Right, exactly right. So the elders have to make that decision. And how public should that decision be? Private. Thank you. See, my clients don't always listen to me, but you do. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly right. It should be private. So I've got some recommendations for you guys on the exercise of church discipline. Number one, I do think this stuff's important. This is the next one. So if you're going to write anything down, then uh, this one and the next one are the things to do. Ensure your bylaws clearly explain to whom the church disciplinary authority applies. Church discipline should never apply to anyone who is not clearly and voluntarily affiliated with the church. Number two, obtain informed consent on disciplinary policies from all members. Now, smaller churches, I kind of like having, having something to go along with the bylaws that later, after, after they come forward, they sign something that says, yeah, I accept the terms of the bylaws including disciplinary authority, if you want to put that in there. Bigger churches at least mail the bylaws to the individual and at least let them know that they are uh, a member of the church, subject to, to the bylaws, right? Then you can keep a copy of, of the cover letter. Number three, when applying church discipline, be consistent. Don't discipline some and then not discipline others. Four, carefully follow your bylaws and disciplinary procedures. Five, be loving, really, and not vindictive. These are people just like anybody else who need Christ. Communicate private information only to those who have a need and right to know. I don't understand this. I don't understand when churches present a disciplinary case to the entire congregation. You have sophisticated business leaders who would never talk about, talk about an employment law matter that was going on in front of their own, in their own companies, who then, during disciplinary process, stand in front of the entire church and tell the church what's going on and who did it. I don't know if, it, I don't know if they're nervous about it. I don't know if they're trying to self-justify. I don't know if they're trying to head off criticism. Don't do it. Have some discipline in yourself and, and, and your board of elders. And if it's private, it's private. Express it only to those who need to know. Now, if there's been a crime, it's going to be public, Right? If you're disciplining the minister or an associate minister, you know, the Catholic Church has gotten in a lot of trouble because they swept things under the rug. I'm not saying that. When there's a crime, we have to address it head on, and it's going to be a public discussion, right? We don't put people in, in a position where they're going to be victimized because we concealed something. That's quite different than protecting someone's reputation in, in a matter that is church discipline rather than criminal conviction. Make sense? Okay, this is one that I find that churches have trouble with. In discussing unproven allegations, carefully distinguish between fact and what is merely allegation, right? So just because somebody said it doesn't mean it's true. However, you do have a responsibility to your congregation to act even upon allegations. What if a young woman accuses someone of sexual impropriety, right? Can you take disciplinary procedures if that individual denies it? Yes, you can. Courts are faced with that issue all the time. People make allegations against each other. And guess what? You still have to make decisions as, as to what your course of action is going, is going to be. And you have the right to do so as well, by the way. Records of disciplinary proceedings should be in writing and available only to limited numbers of persons. And then you need clear guidelines on how you exercise disciplinary, disciplinary authority. Case study. A growing church has updated its policies, including child protection policies. One of the new policies is that background checks are to be completed on all child care volunteers. The background check for one of the volunteers working in the elementary age department reveals that the volunteer is a registered sex offender with two prior convictions for offenses relating to pedophilia. True story. 
The member has never caused any problem in this church and has family members attending this church. What do we do? What is it? All right, let's start here. Shouldn't work with elementary kids, right? We're all in agreement on that. How about retention of membership in the church? Should he stay or should he go? Who thinks stay? Raise your hands. Who thinks go? Raise your hands. We've got a few who say go. We have a few, most who say stay. In this particular instance, uh, the board decided that the individual should have disclosed this information, that it put the church at risk, and for that basis, the individual went. This is my, this ain't a perfect world case, right? We all feel compassion for the individual. They've caused no problems here. They have church and family members here. And yet we have this issue that wasn't disclosed. And you got to assume that they knew that it was a bad thing that they were working in the elementary department, right? Sometimes you have to make decisions in an imperfect world. It's part of the reason why we protect people's reputations where we can. Right? All right, any questions on church discipline? I really will stop and answer them. All right, I'm moving on to church doctrine now. Oh, did you have a question? Um, in this case, the church did take it public. It was part of the culture of their uh, church, and there was no problem in doing so. Notwithstanding, um, sex offenders are already on public registries, and so I don't think the church is exposing itself to liability by not doing so, though... I think that uh, particularly where there's been close contact, I think it's worthwhile to discuss the matter with parents to make sure that there's not been a new instance because that's really the exposure I see is, is, is has there been an instance that we are unaware of that we want to head off? Yeah. to let him go. Say it again? According to the case study, it didn't say whether an individual with a background would be let go. It just says that they would check the background. So, so now they have that option to keep that individual or to let him go. I think that's a very good point. So what Cedric is saying, hey, look, your policy says we're going to do background checks, but shouldn't we have a clear articulation of what the consequences of the outcome of this background check happen to be? I think the answer is yes. I think, I think that people need to know what is going to happen if, the ba if they fail the background check, right? And the church needs to know. And I think the church, for its own protection, needs, needs to have that articulated. Not everyone has two convictions for pedophilia, right? And yet we don't w want them working with, with our children. So yes, I think as a matter of, of policy that, that we do, in fact, do that. In fact... Um, this is really not the, uh, the place where I thought I would mention this, but I think this is an important uh, thing to bring out. Um, so problems that I see coming up from churches sometimes. So I get a 22 or 23-year-old unmarried youth minister who is going on camping trips with youth groups, including 16, 17, 18-year-old girls right? Is it unnatural for a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl to be attracted to a 22 or 23-year-old youth minister? Is it, un is it unnatural for a 22 or 23-year-old youth minister to be not attracted to their 16, 17, 18-year-old uh, students? So we are putting them in a position sometimes where we are cooking our own chemistry of disaster, Right? I think we need to be real careful about who we're choosing as youth, as youth ministers when they apply those roles, right, and the circumstances that we're putting them into, right? You have a great guy with a great ministry opportunity in front of him who has a pretty girl 
and an opportunity, and now we have a church split, right? And a destroyed ministry. So we need to be mature enough. You know, I got gray hair, right? Gray beard, in fact. So we need to be mature enough to help control those circumstances. It's not a knock against either the students or the youth minister. It's just the reality of who we are, right? Can you address a comment you made just a little bit ago about not taking things publicly in front of the church, I think with the exception of, would you say, breaking the law or in, in something in that regard that was legal? Um, and you said that we shouldn't do that. Now, scripturally, 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20 doesn't say that. Scripturally, it says that we're not to entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought with multiple witnesses. And then it says for elders who sin publicly should be reproved publicly in front of the church as a warning to everybody else. So I guess my question is, are there scenarios in cases, and I'm thinking more along the lines of staff, you know, pastors, ministers, or even elders, where, and what does it look like? Are you saying that we should ignore that, that we shouldn't be doing that ever? Or is there, is there a line? I mean, obviously there's a line. Is there there are reasons for that. I guess I just wanted you, you kind of that's an just said question. we're not to do that at all unless it's this, but that's not what Scripture says. I think that's a really wonderful question. It's one of the risks of having a lawyer in front of a group uh, talking to pastors, actually, because I'll give you, the, I'll give you the, the answer from a don't get sued standpoint, and I just might give you the answer from here, and your question exists here, right? So, but I am going to respond to it anyway. As a lawyer, I'm sensitive about getting you sued. But I think there are ways around that too. And if that's articulated on disciplinary measures relating to staff and methodology, if you articulate that, well, guess what? You get to do it, right? And that can kick us back over here. I think also that there is a progression of things that that if you go to somebody and you say, hey, look, you need to straighten this up, and they don't straighten it up, then I think you can feel far more comfortable about having endeavored to protect their reputation, protect their ministry, and still exercise biblical methods of, di of discipline. My opinion. I don't have all the answers, by the way. Okay. I'm going to move on to church doctrine. Are we good? Any more questions? Anything we to talk about? going to actually pop up to right there. Elders must protect sound doctrine. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It is clearly the job of an elder to protect sound doctrine. And I think that there are a couple of things that we need to do, actually, even in our bylaws, to help protect sound doctrine. First, core issues of doctrine, I think, need to be articulated in your bylaws. But guess what? Particular, particular uh, uh, issues that are currently socially relevant, I think those need to be in your bylaws too. Things like homosexuality, transgenderism, marriage, and abortion. Now, the counter argument that I hear to that is Look, we're focusing on one sin when there's a whole plethora of sins, right? That's true. But there's a couple of things. Number one, um, if I'm getting attacked at the gates, I'm going to defend the gates. And so I think that we need to be careful about making sure that we're putting defenses where they're necessary. Number two, guess what? I'll talk about this a little bit more. Courts respect court doctrine. They try not to wade into that issue. If you're articulating court, uh, church doctrine, uh, in your bylaws, then it's hard for a court to say that's not um, uh, a part of your doctrine. So there, are, so things like you know biblical authority, inerrancy of the Bible, the Trinity, resurrection, baptism, the role of the church on earth, salvation, judgment, eternity, and other issues that the elders may believe are are the core things relating to who the church is. I think those need to be in the bylaws. So those are clearly doctrinally protected. And as I say, these cultural issues should be too. There are some things that I think you should do 
uh, or there's, there's some reasons for this. Number one, if doctrine is articulated in the bylaws, then it's very difficult to change. You need a 67% approval, going over there again, of the board in order to change your bylaws in most instances. So those things are then protected. They don't change with the whims of the day. Secondly, clearly articulated doctrine keeps you out of legal trouble. If you have a policy on homosexuality, but it really isn't clear, then the church gets sued. You know what the plaintiff's lawyer is going to do? He's going to take each and every one of your 11 elders into a deposition separately, and he's going to say, what's the church's position on homosexuality? What's the church's position on homosexuality? What's the church's position on homosexuality? He's going to get 11 different answers. And he's going to say, there is no position. There is no consistency. And if there's no policy, then you've exercised this, this process wrongly, and I'm going to sue you. Whereas if it's clearly articulated, then anytime anybody asks, you say, that's our policy. We have it written down. Doesn't have to necessarily be in, in the bylaws. Could, could be in, in policy manuals, right? But I like for it to be articulated. Number three, there's a doctrine called benevolent neutrality. Benevolent neutrality. Benevolent neutrality says courts will wade into these issues relating to secular governance because this is the state wading into issues of the state. Benevolent neutrality says that courts do everything that they can to not wade into issues of doctrine. You have control over what constitutes doctrine if you exercise that control. If you don't exercise it, if you leave it ambiguous, then you open the door for the, for the interpretation of that position as, to be, as being a secular position and one in which the courts can involve themselves. Now, I know that's a difficult subject, and I know you guys may be thinking about, wait a second, I've got a church of 4,000 people. How am I going to put a bylaw change in front of, in front of a church of 4,000 people? It's going to cause political waves like mad. It's not practical for us. It's all right. I think there are other ways to do it. For example, we've solved it several times in the past by saying biblical sex is reserved exclusively for marriage. Marriage is defined as a lifelong union between one man and one woman ordained by God. By inclusion, we have, we, we, we have clarified the issue of exclusion, right? We've defined what marriage is, and by definition, what it's not is on the outside. I also think that there are a lot of things that will not come up on a day-to-day -day basis or which you may not have clearly articulated doctrine or that you may get a new challenge on a doctrinal issue. Somebody has to be in a position to, res to resolve those issues. I think your bylaws should clearly state, and this is a bylaw issue, that elders are the final arbiter of doctrine within this church. So if people begin arguing about, hey, we think it should be this or we think it should be that, the elders get to decide. Somebody's, somebody's got to decide. And by the way, the minister is one of the elders, right? Case study. A same-sex couple telephones your church and wants to rent your sanctuary for their upcoming wedding and the fellowship hall for the reception. Unknown to you, the telephone call is being recorded by an organization looking to create case law, right? So you know that statutory law comprises this much of written law in the country, and case law comprises this much, right? And so a lot of social development is accomplished through the development of case law, and this organization is using this as an opportunity, not just to attack your church, but to attack all churches and create a circumstance. What do you hope your governing documents say in this instance? What's that? Speak up. Define what marriage is and not what it's not, right? 
How about our policies? I would suggest that we want to make sure that our policies indicate that our buildings will be used for reasons that support the church, pur church purposes and mission. Does that mean that you can't marry somebody who's not a, a member of the church? Yeah, you can still do it. Because one of the things we do is, is that we biblically marry people. It supports the church mission, even if they're not members. So don't cut it on whether it's member or not. Cut it on whether it's mission or not. Right? You can expand this to... And by the way, that way you keep it in the issue of doctrine and church use rather than the issue of just blanket renting out your facilities to the public, right? If you're just renting out your facilities to the public, then they're going to say, ah, renting out facilities to public is a secular matter, not a sacred matter, and therefore we have the right to make a discussion. So if you, use, if you articulate that your building is to be used in, in ways that support your mission, and that can be very broad, but I think, that clear, I think even that distinction helps. So you can still bring in the Boy Scouts, right? But then you run into the issue, what happens when your Boy Scout troop leader is openly homosexual? Something you have to deal with again. All right. So I know I've gone through a lot. I know it can be intimidating. You know, even today, I'm in a suit and you guys are in shorts, right? So lawyers can be very intimidating. People tell me, I think I'm a friendly guy, but people tell me I'm intimidating all the time, right? But this is a job that you can do, and it's a job that you are doing. You just need to be thoughtful about how, you, how you're doing. And I think it's okay to go to a lawyer in your congregation or a local guy who cares about who you are and seek individual guidance on working through these issues. The things I've talked about are not the answer. I'm trying to raise awareness of what the questions are here, right? So my youngest son, I already told you that he was fearless, right? And uh, I do this all the time when I talk about my family. I get choked up. Do you guys do that too? So uh, that's my youngest son on the left. He's nine now. He's eight right there. The guy on the right, that's one of our best buddies. His name is John Sanchez. John Sanchez is a United States Navy SEAL. He's an academy graduate. He's not just a SEAL. You know, they have a Special Forces Olympics every year. Where they, Special forces from throughout the world come together and compete against each other. That guy on the right, he won the Special Forces Olympics twice. So my boy right there, when he was eight years old, looked at John Sanchez and said, I challenge you to a race up your hill. Now his hill looks like this, and it's 150 yards long. And John Sanchez uses that, not every day, but pretty often, to go out and train on. But my eight-year-old boy said, I'm going to take you down. <laughs> and you know what? He believed he could. And so, uh, uh, and he said, if I win, you got to buy me candy at the candy store. And if you win, I'll buy you candy at the candy store. And so the day of the race came, well, I took John aside. And I said, John, you can't let him win. In fact, you can't give him an inch. If he beats you, it has to be because he earns it. And John Sanchez understands that. He understands that we're not dealing with a race, that we're developing a boy here, right? We're developing a boy into a man. And so he said, yeah, I got it. You know, there's no way I would have let him win in any way, in any event. And so <laughs> uh, the day of the race came, my 12-year-old daughter, Sophia Redhead, and his 10-year-old da daughter, Anave, were uh, standing on top of an electric transformer, emceeing the race, talking smack to each other about who was going to win. Sophia had her brother represent girl. And so, and Anave had her dad, and, and they started the race. And uh, they both took off as hard as they could run up that hill. And Nathan did a surprisingly good job at the bottom of the hill. It's a whole lot easier to get 62 pounds moving than it is 162 pounds moving, right? And so they took off. And, uh, but from the second step on, John Sanchez was in the lead. And by the end, John had, uh, had uh, outstripped Nathan by a good 30 yards. Nathan ran the entire race. That's your job. Have courage. Run the race. God will take care of who wins, right? But run the race with faith and endurance. You can do this. I'm proud of you. 
And guess what? Someday, David's going to beat him. <laughs> and you're going to win. Thank you.